Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. So today on the podcast, we have a very extra special guest, Suzanne Kyoto, who is a assistant professor at Western teaching class actions and access to justice, and is going to read for us the decision of Herniak and Malden. And just a shameless plug before we start, Suzanne also just started her own podcast about class actions called Certified class actions and beyond. So definitely go and give them a listen, specifically if you are interested in class actions. And yeah. All right, Zach, what do we know about Herniac and Malton? So this is a case because I'm not necessarily a civil law guy (laughs) yet. There's still time to learn. But this case, as um, I see some of the notes I have on it, it's about (laughs) summary judgment rules, which are actually super important because they help expedite the civil law procedure and the civil law system. And so it basically goes on stating that um, summary judgment rules should be interpreted broadly, they should be proportional and provide fair access to affordable, timely, and just adjudication of claims, which makes sense because sometimes people launch claims without a defense or without merit in terms of the um, statement of claim. Yes, no, definitely. And it uh, Justice Karakatsanis wrote the decision for the court, and she makes a good point at one point saying sort of, you know, the courts need to change procedure around access to justice, not the other way around, right? Like access to justice shouldn't have to bend and twist and sneak in around court rules. It's like court rules should be set up in a way that facilitates access to justice. It should flow in that direction, not the opposite, which is a pretty strong statement on access to justice oh, from the court, especially considering, you know, considering it's a procedural thing, which uh, you know, you and me both know with clinic experience, a lot of access to justice is denied in the tiny procedural details, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely it is. Like, it's an unfortunate aspect of both almost every area of law, like not even just criminal or civil law, which is, you know, mostly what I'm interested in, but like in all forms and avenues of like accessing the legal frameworks administratively, like the landlord-tenant board, like a lot of stuff gets gummed up in procedure when it doesn't necessarily need to. And I think this kind of says we don't need to fit a square peg through a circle hole instead we should make the peg into a circle yes no exactly instead of trying to force the system to adjust make the system actually work for the people who need to use it yes definitely and saying you know that these court systems they're not one that they're not sort of set in stone and immovable like obviously they can change to reflect different values and one of those values that they should be reflecting is access to justice and you know i know we've been chatting COVID a lot on the podcast but there's going to be sort of a whole new frontier of access to justice issues as things transition online because i know as you know we were chatting before we started recording for us as lawyers this transition or almost lawyers, this transition to online has been, you know, great and very efficient and we can work partially from home and partially from an office. And, you know, it's wonderful. But we also have to deal with the flip side of a coin in terms of things like public access to courts and being able to see hearings. And, you know, what if a client doesn't have access to stable internet connections or stable phone lines? And, you know, there is a way to incorporate technology without leaving people 
behind. And I think uh, the COVID sort of developments are hopefully go in tandem with that sort of idea, which I think is what the court is getting at here. You know, that the systems of the court should be built around access to justice. Yeah, and that's absolutely the truth too, right? Because on one hand, I love some of the changes that I've just now firsthand <laughs> experienced while in my articling position, but I can also appreciate there are concerns about the open court principle, for example, like how can a court be open if it's only held online? There are certain members of the public through no fault of their own, they don't have access to the internet or access to a reliable phone connection that they can use, and they shouldn't be punished or prevented from going to court because of that. So I think that lends itself to being, you know, maybe it's something else we can talk about in the future. Yeah, no. I don't know. I, it's going to come up, <laughs> probably. Yes, it is. It's my, uh, it's my crystal ball prediction here. Uh, but yeah, with that, we are going to leave it to Suzanne and... Her recording is absolutely a delight for the ears. I already took a sneak peek, so we hope you guys enjoy. Hriniak and Maldin, 2014, SCC 7. The Judgment of the Court, delivered by Justice Karakatsanis. Ensuring access to justice is the greatest challenge to the rule of law in Canada today. Trials have become increasingly expensive and protracted, most Canadians cannot afford to sue when they are wronged or defend themselves when they are sued, and cannot afford to go to trial. Without an effective and accessible means of enforcing rights, the rule of law is threatened. Without public adjudication of civil cases, the development of the common law is stunted. Increasingly, there is recognition that a culture shift is required in order to create an environment promoting timely and affordable access to the civil justice system. This shift entails simplifying pre-trial procedures and moving the emphasis away from the conventional trial in favour of proportional procedures tailored to the needs of the particular case. The balance between procedure and access struck by our justice system must come to reflect the modern reality and recognise that new models of adjudication can be fair and just. Summary judgment motions provide one such opportunity. Following the Civil Justice Reform Project Summary of Findings and Recommendations, the Osborne Report in 2007, Ontario amended the rules of civil procedure to increase access to justice. This appeal and its companion, Bruno Appliance and Furniture Inc. v. Hriniac, 2014 SCC 8, address the proper interpretation of the amended Rule 20 Summary Judgment Motion. In interpreting these provisions, the Ontario Court of Appeal placed too high a premium on the full appreciation of evidence that can be gained at a conventional trial, given that such a trial is not a realistic alternative for most litigants. In my view, a trial is not required if a summary judgment motion can achieve a fair and just adjudication, if it provides a process that allows the judge to make the necessary findings of fact, apply the law to those facts, and is a proportionate, more expeditious, and less expensive means to achieve a just result than going to trial. To that end, I conclude that summary judgment rules must be interpreted broadly, favouring proportionality and fair access to the affordable, timely and just adjudication of claims. As the Court of Appeal observed, the inappropriate use of summary judgment motions creates its own costs and delays. However, judges can mitigate such risks by making use of their powers to manage and focus the process and, where possible, remain seized of the proceedings. While I differ in part on the interpretation of Rule 20, 
I agree with the Court of Appeal's disposition of the matter and would dismiss the appeal. 1. Facts More than a decade ago, a group of American investors, led by Fred Molden, the Molden Group, placed their money in the hands of Canadian traders. Robert Hurniak was the principal of the company Tropos Capital Inc., which traded in bonds and debt instruments. Gregory Peebles is a corporate commercial lawyer, formerly of Castlesbrook and Blackwell, who acted for Hurniak, Tropos and Robert Cranston, formerly a principal of a Panamanian company, Frontline Investments Inc. In June 2001, two members of the Malden Group met with Cranston, Peebles and Hriniak to discuss an investment opportunity. At the end of June 2001, the Malden Group wired 1.2 million US dollars to Castles Brock, which was pooled with other funds and transferred to Tropos. A few months later, Tropos forwarded more than 10 million US dollars to an offshore bank, and the money disappeared. Hriniak claims that at this point, Tropos funds, including the funds contributed by the Molding Group, were stolen. Beyond a small payment of 9,600 US dollars in February 2002, the Molding Group lost its investment. 2. Judicial History Ontario Superior Court of Justice, 2010, ONSC 5490 The Molding Group joined with Bruno Appliance and Furniture Inc., the appellants in the Companion Appeal, in an action for civil fraud against Treniac, Peebles and Castles Brock. They brought motions for summary judgment, which were heard together. In hearing the motions, the judge used his powers under the new Rule 20.04-2.1 to weigh the evidence, evaluate credibility and draw inferences. He found that the Malden Group's money was dispersed by Castlesbrock to Hriniac's company, Tropos, but that there was no evidence to suggest that Tropos had ever set up a trading programme. Contrary to the investment strategy that Hriniac had described to the investors, the Malden Group's money was placed in an account with the offshore New Savings Bank and then disappeared. He rejected Hriniac's claim that members of the New Savings Bank had stolen the Malden Group's money. The motion judge concluded that a trial was not required against Hriniac. However, he dismissed the Malden Group's motion for summary judgment against Peebles because that claim involved factual issues, particularly with respect to Peebles' credibility and involvement in a key meeting, which required a trial. Consequently, he also dismissed the motion for summary judgment against Castles Brock, as those claims were based on the theory that the firm was vicariously liable for Peebles' conduct. B. Court of Appeal for Ontario, 2011 Onca 764. The Court of Appeal simultaneously heard Hriniac's appeal of this matter, the companion Bruno Appliance appeal, and three other matters which are not before this court. This was the first occasion on which the Court of Appeal considered the new Rule 20. The Court of Appeal set out a threshold test for when a motion judge could employ the new evidentiary powers available under Rule 20.04-2.1 to grant summary judgment under Rule 20.04-2a. Under this test, the interest of justice requires that the new powers be exercised only at trial unless a motion judge can achieve the, quote, full appreciation of the evidence and issues required to make dispositive findings on a motion for summary judgment. A motion judge should assess whether the benefits of the trial process, including the opportunity to hear and observe witnesses, to have the evidence presented by way of a trial narrative, and to experience the fact-finding process firsthand, are necessary to fully appreciate the evidence in the case. The Court of Appeal suggested that cases requiring multiple factual findings, 
based on conflicting evidence from a number of witnesses and involving an extensive record, are generally not fit for determination in this manner. Conversely, cases driven by documents with few witnesses and limited contentious factual issues are appropriate candidates for summary judgment. The Court of Appeal advised motion judges to make use of the power to hear oral evidence under Rule 20.04 sub 22 to hear only from a limited number of witnesses on discrete issues that are determinative of the case. The Court of Appeal concluded that, given its factual complexity and voluminous record, the Malden Group's action was the type of action for which a trial is generally required. There were numerous witnesses, various theories of liability against multiple defendants, serious credibility issues, and an absence of reliable documentary evidence. Moreover, since Freniac and Peebles had cross-claimed against each other and a trial would nonetheless be required against the other defendants, summary judgment would not serve the values of better access to justice, proportionality and cost savings. Despite concluding that this case was not an appropriate candidate for summary judgment, the Court of Appeal was satisfied that the record supported the finding that Hreniak had committed the tort of civil fraud against the Malden Group, and therefore dismissed Hreniak's appeal. 3. Outline In determining the general principles to be followed with respect to summary judgment, I will begin with the values underlying timely, affordable and fair access to justice. Next, I will turn to the role of summary judgment motions generally and the interpretation of Rule 20 in particular. I will then address specific judicial tools for managing the risks of summary judgment motions. Finally, I will consider the appropriate standard of review and whether summary judgment should have been granted to the respondents. 4. Analysis A. Access to civil justice and necessary culture shift this appeal concerns the values and choices underlying our civil justice system and the ability of ordinary Canadians to access that justice. Our civil justice system is premised upon the value that the process of adjudication must be fair and just. This cannot be compromised. However, undue process and protracted trials with unnecessary expense and delay can prevent the fair and just resolution of disputes. The full trial has become largely illusory because, except where government funding is available, ordinary Canadians cannot afford to access the adjudication of civil disputes. The cost and delay associated with the traditional process means that, as counsel for the intervener at the Advocate Society in Bruno Appliance stated at the hearing of this appeal, the trial process denies ordinary people the opportunity to have adjudication. And while going to trial has long been seen as a last resort, other dispute resolution mechanisms, such as mediation and settlement, are more likely to produce fair and just results when adjudication remains a realistic alternative. Prompt judicial resolution of legal disputes allows individuals to get on with their lives. But when court costs and delays become too great, people look for alternatives or simply give up on justice. Sometimes they choose to represent themselves, often creating further problems due to their lack of familiarity with the law. In some circles, private arbitration is increasingly seen as an alternative to a slow judicial process. But private arbitration is not the solution since, without an accessible public forum for the adjudication of disputes, the rule of law is threatened and the development of the common law undermined. There is growing support for alternative adjudication of disputes and a developing consensus that the traditional balance struck by extensive pre-trial processes and the conventional trial no longer reflects the modern reality and needs to be readjusted.
a proper balance requires simplified and proportionate procedures for adjudication and impacts the role of counsel and judges. This balance must recognise that a process can be fair and just without the expense and delay of a trial and that alternative models of adjudication are no less legitimate than the conventional trial. This requires a shift in culture. The principal goal remains the same, a fair process that results in a just adjudication of disputes. A fair and just process must permit a judge to find the facts necessary to resolve the dispute and to apply the relevant legal principles to the facts as found. However, that process is illusory unless it is also accessible, proportionate, timely and affordable. The proportionality principle means that the best forum for resolving a dispute is not always that with the most painstaking procedure. There is, of course, always some tension between accessibility and the truth-seeking function, but, much as one would not expect a jury trial over a contested parking ticket, the procedures used to adjudicate civil disputes must fit the nature of the claim. If the process is disproportionate to the nature of the dispute and the interests involved, then it will not achieve a fair and just result. The proportionality principle is now reflected in many of the province's rules and can act as a touchstone for access to civil justice. For example, Ontario Rules 1.04 sub 1 and sub 1.1 provide 1.04 sub 1 These rules shall be liberally construed to secure the just, most expeditious and least expensive determination of every civil proceeding on its merits. Sub 1.1 In applying these rules, the court shall make orders and give directions that are proportionate to the importance and complexity of the issues and to the amount involved in the proceeding. Even where proportionality is not specifically codified, applying rules of court that involve discretion quote, includes an underlying principle of proportionality, which means taking account of the appropriateness of the procedure, its cost and impact on the litigation, and its timeliness given the nature and complexity of the litigation. End quote. From Cito and Dwyer, 2010 NLCA 36, at paragraph 53. This culture shift requires judges to actively manage the legal process in line with the principle of proportionality. While summary judgment motions can save time and resources, like most pretrial procedures, they can also slow down the proceedings if used inappropriately. While judges can and should play a role in controlling such risks, counsel must, in accordance with the traditions of their profession, act in a way that facilitates, rather than frustrates, access to justice. Lawyers should consider their clients' limited means and the nature of their case and fashion proportionate means to achieve a fair and just result. A complex claim may involve an extensive record and a significant commitment of time and expense. However, proportionality is inevitably comparative. Even slow and expensive procedures can be proportionate when they are the fastest and most efficient alternative. The question is whether the added expense and delay of fact-finding at trial is necessary to a fair process and just adjudication. B. Summary Judgment Motions The summary judgment motion is an important tool for enhancing access to justice because it can provide a cheaper, faster alternative to a full trial. With the exception of Quebec, all provinces feature a summary judgment mechanism in their respective rules of civil procedure. Generally, summary judgment is available where there is no genuine issue for trial. Rule 20 is Ontario's summary judgment procedure, under which a party may move for summary judgment to grant or dismiss all or part of a claim. 
Well, Ontario's Rule 20 in some ways goes further than other rules throughout the country. The values and principles underlying its interpretation are of general application. Rule 20 was amended in 2010, following the recommendations of the Osborne Report to improve access to justice. These reforms embody the evolution of summary judgment rules from highly restricted tools used to weed out clearly unmeritorious claims or defences to their current status as a legitimate alternative means for adjudicating and resolving legal disputes. Early summary judgment rules were quite limited in scope and were available only to plaintiffs with claims based on debt or liquidated damages, where no real defence existed. Summary judgment existed to avoid the waste of a full trial in a clear case. In 1985, the then new Rule 20 extended the availability of summary judgment to both plaintiffs and defendants and broadened the scope of cases that could be disposed of on such a motion. The rules were initially interpreted expansively, in line with the purposes of the rule changes. However, appellate jurisprudence limited the powers of judges and effectively narrowed the purpose of motions for summary judgment to merely ensuring that, quote, claims that have no chance of success are weeded out at an early stage, end quote. The Ontario Government commissioned former Ontario Associate Chief Justice Coulter Osborne QC to consider reforms to make the Ontario civil justice system more accessible and affordable, leading to the report of the Civil Justice Reform Project. The Osborne report concluded that few summary judgment motions were being brought and, if the summary judgment rule was to work as intended, the appellate jurisprudence that had narrowed the scope and utility of the rule had to be reversed. Among other things, it recommended that summary judgment be made more widely available, that judges be given the power to weigh evidence on summary judgment motions, and that judges be given discretion to direct that oral evidence be presented. The report also recommended the adoption of a summary trial procedure similar to that employed in British Columbia. This particular recommendation was not adopted, and the legislature made the choice to maintain summary judgment as the accessible procedure. Many of the Osborne Report's recommendations were taken up and implemented in 2010. As noted above, the amendments codify the proportionality principle and provide for efficient adjudication when a conventional trial is not required. They offer significant new tools to judges, which allow them to adjudicate more cases through summary judgment motions and attenuate the risks when such motions do not resolve the entire case. Rule 20.04 now reads in part 20.04 sub 2 The court shall grant summary judgment if a. The court is satisfied that there is no genuine issue requiring a trial with respect to a claim or defence or b. The parties agree to have all or part of the claim determined by a summary judgment and the court is satisfied that it is appropriate to grant summary judgment. Sub 2.1. In determining under Clause 2A whether there is a genuine issue requiring a trial, the court shall consider the evidence submitted by the parties and, if the determination is being made by a judge, the judge may exercise any of the following powers for the purpose, unless it is in the interest of justice for such powers to be exercised only at a trial. 1. Weighing the evidence. 2. Evaluating the credibility of a deponent. 3. Drawing any reasonable inference from the evidence. Sub 2.2. A judge may, for the purposes of exercising any of the powers set out in Sub Rule 2.1, order that oral evidence be presented by one or more parties, with or without time limits on its presentation. 
The Ontario amendments changed the test for summary judgment from asking whether the case presents, quote, a genuine issue for trial, end quote, to asking whether there is, quote, a genuine issue requiring a trial, end quote. The new rule, with its enhanced fact-finding powers, demonstrates that a trial is not the default procedure. Further, it eliminated the presumption of substantial indemnity costs against a party that brought an unsuccessful motion for summary judgment in order to avoid deterring the use of the procedure. The new powers in Rules 20.04 Sub 2.1 and Sub 2.2 expand the number of cases in which there will be no genuine issue requiring a trial by permitting motion judges to weigh evidence, evaluate credibility and draw reasonable inferences. These new fact-finding powers are discretionary and are presumptively available. They may be exercised unless it is in the interest of justice for them to be exercised only at a trial. Rule 20.04 Sub 2.1 Thus, the amendments are designed to transform Rule 20 from a means to weed out unmeritorious claims to a significant alternative model of adjudication. I will first consider when summary judgment can be granted on the basis that there is, quote, no genuine issue requiring a trial, end quote, under Rule 20.04 Sub 2a. Second, I will discuss when it is against the, quote, interest of justice, end quote, for the new fact-finding powers in Rule 20.04 Sub 2.1 to be used on a summary judgment motion. Third, I will consider the power to call oral evidence and, finally, I will lay out the process to be followed on a motion for summary judgment. 1. When is there no genuine issue requiring a trial? Summary judgment motions must be granted whenever there is no genuine issue requiring a trial, Rule 20.04 Sub 2a. In outlining how to determine whether there is such an issue, I focus on the goals and principles that underlie whether to grant motions for summary judgment. Such an approach allows the application of the rule to evolve organically, lest categories of cases be taken as rules or preconditions which may hinder the system's transformation by discouraging the use of summary judgment. The Court of Appeal did not explicitly focus upon when there is a genuine issue requiring a trial. However, in considering whether it is against the interest of justice to use the new fact-finding powers, the court suggested that summary judgment would most often be appropriate when cases were document-driven, with few witnesses and limited contentious factual issues, or when the record could be supplemented by oral evidence on discrete points. These are helpful observations but, as the court itself recognised, should not be taken as delineating firm categories of cases where summary judgment is and is not appropriate. For example, while this case is complex, with a voluminous record, the Court of Appeal ultimately agreed that there was no genuine issue requiring a trial. There will be no genuine issue requiring a trial when the judge is able to reach a fair and just determination on the merits on a motion for summary judgment. This will be the case when the process 1. allows the judge to make the necessary findings of fact, 2. allows the judge to apply the law to the facts, and 3. is a proportionate, more expeditious and less expensive means to achieve a just result. These principles are interconnected and all speak to whether summary judgment will provide a fair and just adjudication. When a summary judgment motion allows the judge to find the necessary facts and resolve the dispute, proceeding to trial would generally not be proportionate, timely or cost-effective. Similarly, a process that does not give a judge confidence in her conclusions can never be the proportionate way to resolve a dispute. It bears reiterating that the standard for fairness is not whether the procedure is as exhaustive as a trial, 
but whether it gives the judge confidence that she can find the necessary facts and apply the relevant legal principles so as to resolve the dispute. Often, concerns about credibility or clarification of the evidence can be addressed by calling oral evidence on the motion itself. However, there may be cases where, given the nature of the issues and the evidence required, the judge cannot make the necessary findings of fact or apply the legal principles to reach a just and fair determination. 2. The Interests of Justice The enhanced fact-finding powers granted to motion judges in Rule 20.04 Sub 2.1 may be employed on a motion for summary judgment unless it is in the interest of justice for them to be exercised only at a trial. The quote, interest of justice, end quote, is not defined in the rules. To determine whether the interest of justice allowed the motion judge to use her new powers, the Court of Appeal required a motion judge to ask herself, can the full appreciation of the evidence and issues that are required to make depositive findings be achieved by way of summary judgment, or can this full appreciation only be achieved by way of a trial? Paragraph 50. The Court of Appeal identified the benefits of a trial that contribute to this full appreciation of the evidence. The narrative that counsel can build through trial, the ability of witnesses to speak in their own words, and the assistance of counsel in sifting through the evidence. The respondents, as well as the interveners, the Canadian Bar Association, the Attorney General of Ontario, and the Advocate Society, submit that the Court of Appeal's emphasis on the virtues of the traditional trial is misplaced and unduly restrictive. Further, some of these interveners submit that this approach may result in the creation of categories of cases inappropriate for summary judgment, and this will limit the development of the summary judgment vehicle. While I agree that a motion judge must have an appreciation of the evidence necessary to make dispositive findings, such an appreciation is not only available at trial. Focusing on how much and what kind of evidence could be adduced at trial as opposed to whether a trial is required as the rule directs, is likely to lead to the bar being set too high. The interest of justice cannot be limited to the advantageous features of a conventional trial and must account for proportionality, timeliness and affordability. Otherwise, the adjudication permitted with the new powers and the purpose of the amendments would be frustrated. On a summary judgment motion, the evidence need not be equivalent to that at trial, but must be such that the judge is confident that she can fairly resolve the dispute. A documentary record, particularly when supplemented by the new fact-finding tools, including ordering oral testimony, is often sufficient to resolve material issues fairly and justly. The powers provided in Rules 20.04, Sub 2.1 and Sub 2.2 can provide an equally valid, if less extensive, manner of fact-finding. This inquiry into the interest of justice is, by its nature, comparative. Proportionality is assessed in relation to the full trial. It may require the motion judge to assess the relative efficiencies of proceeding by way of summary judgment, as opposed to trial. This would involve a comparison of, among other things, the cost and speed of both procedures. Although summary judgment may be expensive and time-consuming, as in this case, a trial may be even more expensive and slower. It may also involve a comparison of the evidence that will be available at trial and on the motion, as well as the opportunity to fairly evaluate it. Even if the evidence available on the motion is limited, there may be no reason to think better evidence would be available at trial. In practice, whether it is against the interest of justice to use the new fact-finding powers will often coincide with whether there is a, quote, genuine issue requiring a trial, end quote. It is logical that, when the use of the new powers would enable a judge to fairly and justly adjudicate a claim, 
it will generally not be against the interest of justice to do so. What is fair and just turns on the nature of the issues, the nature and strength of the evidence, and what is the proportional procedure. The interest of justice inquiry goes further and also considers the consequences of the motion in the context of the litigation as a whole. For example, if some of the claims against some of the parties will proceed to trial in any event, it may not be in the interest of justice to use the new fact-finding powers to grant summary judgment against a single defendant. Such partial summary judgment may run the risk of duplicative proceedings or inconsistent findings of fact, and therefore the use of the powers may not be in the interest of justice. On the other hand, the resolution of an important claim against a key party could significantly advance access to justice and be the mo most proportionate, timely and cost-effective approach. 3. The power to hear oral evidence. Under Rule 20.04 sub 2.2, the motion judge is given the power to hear oral evidence to assist her in making findings under Rule 20.04 sub 2.1. The decision to allow oral evidence rests with the motion judge, since, as the Court of Appeal noted, it is the motion judge, not counsel, who maintains control over the extent of the evidence to be led and the issues to which the evidence is to be directed. Paragraph 60. The Court of Appeal suggested that the motion judge should only exercise this power when, one, oral evidence can be obtained from a small number of witnesses and gathered in a manageable period of time, Two, any issue to be dealt with by presenting oral evidence is likely to have a significant impact on whether the summary judgment motion is granted. And three, any such issue is narrow and discreet, i.e. the issue can be separately decided and is not enmeshed with other issues on the motion. This is useful guidance to ensure that the hearing of oral evidence does not become unmanageable. However, as the Court of Appeal recognised, these are not absolute rules. This power should be employed when it allows the judge to reach a fair and just adjudication on the merits and it is the proportionate course of action. While this is more likely to be the case when the oral evidence required is limited, there will be cases when extensive oral evidence can be heard on the motion for summary judgment, avoiding the need for a longer, more complex trial and without compromising the fairness of the procedure. Where a party seeks to lead oral evidence, it should be prepared to demonstrate why such evidence would assist the motion judge in weighing the evidence, assessing credibility, or drawing inferences, and to provide a will-say statement or other description of the proposed evidence, so that the judge will have a basis for setting the scope of the oral evidence. Thus, the power to call oral evidence should be used to promote the fair and just resolution of the dispute in light of the principles of proportionality, timeliness, and affordability. In tailoring the nature and extent of oral evidence that will be heard, the motion judge should be guided by these principles and remember that the process is not a full trial on the merits, but is designed to determine if there is a genuine issue requiring a trial. 4. The Roadmap slash Approach to a Motion for Summary Judgment On a motion for summary judgment under Rule 20.04, the judge should first determine if there is a genuine issue requiring a trial based only on the evidence before her, without using the new fact-finding powers. There will be no genuine issue requiring a trial if the summary judgment process provides her with the evidence required to fairly and justly adjudicate the dispute and is a timely, affordable and proportionate procedure under Rule 20.04 sub 2a. If there appears to be a genuine issue requiring a trial, she should then determine if the need for a trial can be avoided by using the new powers under Rules 20.04 Sub 2.1 and Sub 
She may, at her discretion, use those powers, provided that their use is not against the interest of justice. Their use will not be against the interest of justice if they will lead to a fair and just result and will serve the goals of timeliness, affordability and proportionality in light of the litigation as a whole. Inquiring first as to whether the use of the powers under Rule 20.04 sub 21 will allow the dispute to result by way of summary judgment before asking whether the interest of justice requires that those powers be exercised only at trial, emphasises that these powers are presumptively available rather than exceptional, in line with the goal of proportionate, cost-effective and timely dispute resolution. As well, by first determining the consequences of using the new powers, the benefit of their use is clearer. This will assist in determining whether it is in the interest of justice that they be exercised only at trial. While summary judgment must be granted if there is no genuine issue requiring a trial, the decision to use either the expanded fact-finding powers or to call oral evidence is discretionary. The discretionary nature of this power gives the judge some flexibility in deciding the appropriate course of action. This discretion can act as a safety valve in cases where the use of such powers would clearly be inappropriate. There is always the risk that clearly unmeritorious motions for summary judgment could be abused and used tactically to add time and expense. In such cases, the motion judge may choose to decline to exercise her discretion to use those powers and dismiss the motion for summary judgment without engaging in the full inquiry delineated above. C. Tools to maximize the efficiency of a summary judgment motion. 1. Controlling the scope of a summary judgment motion. The Ontario rules and a superior court's inherent jurisdiction permit a motion judge to be involved early in the life of a motion in order to control the size of the record and to remain active in the event the motion does not resolve the entire action. The rules provide for early judicial involvement through Rule 1.05, which allows a motion for directions to manage the time and cost of the summary judgment motion. This allows a judge to provide directions with regard to the timelines for filing affidavits, the length of cross-examination, and the nature and amount of evidence that will be filed. However, motion judges must also be cautious not to impose administrative measures that add an unnecessary layer of cost. Not all motions for summary judgment will require a motion for directions. However, failure to bring such a motion where it was evident that the record would be complex or voluminous may be considered when dealing with cost consequences under Rule 20.06a. In line with the principle of proportionality, the judge hearing the motion for directions should generally be seized of the summary judgment motion itself, ensuring the knowledge she has developed about the case does not go to waste. I agree with the Court of Appeal at paragraphs 58 and 258 that a motion for directions also provides the responding party with the opportunity to seek an order to stay or dismiss a premature or improper motion for summary judgment. This may be appropriate to challenge lengthy, complex motions, particularly on the basis that they would not sufficiently advance the litigation or serve the principles of proportionality, timeliness and affordability. A motion for summary judgment will not always be the most proportionate way to dispose of an action. For example, an early date may be available for a short trial, or the parties may be prepared to proceed with a summary trial. Counsel should always be mindful of the most proportionate procedure for their client and the case. 2. Salvaging a failed summary judgment motion Failed, or even partially successful, summary judgment motions add, sometimes astronomically, to costs and delay 
However, this risk can be attenuated by a judge who makes use of the trial management powers provided in Rule 20.05 and the court's inherent jurisdiction. Rules 20.05 sub 1 and 2 provide, in part, where summary judgment is refused or is granted only in part, the court may make an order specifying what material facts are not in dispute and defining the issues to be tried, and order that the action proceed to trial expeditiously. Sub 2. If an action is ordered to proceed to trial under Sub Rule 1, the court may give such directions or impose such terms as are just. Rules 20.05 Sub 2a through p outline a number of specific trial management orders that may be appropriate. The court may set a schedule, provide a restricted discovery plan, set a trial date, require payment into court of the claim, or order security for costs. The court may order that the parties deliver a concise summary of their opening statement, the parties deliver a written summary of the anticipated evidence of a witness, any oral examination of a witness at trial will be subject to a time limit, or the evidence of a witness be given in whole or in part by affidavit. These powers allow the judge to use the insight she gained from hearing the summary judgment motion to craft a trial procedure that will resolve the dispute in a way that is sensitive to the complexity and importance of the issue, the amount involved in the case, and the effort expended on the failed motion. The motion judge should look to the summary trial as a model, particularly where affidavits filed could serve as the evidence of a witness, subject to time-limited examinations and cross-examinations. Although the rules did not adopt the Osborne Report's recommendation of a summary trial model, this model already exists under the simplified rules or on consent. In my view, the summary trial model will also be available further to the broad powers granted to a judge under Rule 20.05 Sub 2. Where a motion judge dismisses a motion for summary judgment, in the absence of compelling reasons to the contrary, she should also seize herself of the matter as a trial judge. I agree with the Osborne report that the involvement of a single judicial officer throughout saves judicial time since parties will not have to get a different judge up to speed each time an issue arises in the case. It may also have a calming effect on the conduct of litigious parties and counsel, as they will come to predict how the judicial official assigned to the case might rule on a given issue. While such an approach may complicate scheduling, to the extent that current scheduling practices prevent summary judgment motions being used in an efficient and cost-effective manner, the court should be prepared to change their practices in order to facilitate access to justice. D. Standard of review. The Court of Appeal concluded that determining the appropriate test for summary judgment, whether there is a genuine issue requiring a trial, is a legal question, reviewable on a correctness standard while any factual determinations made by the motion judge will attract deference. In my view, absent an error of law, the exercise of powers under the new summary judgment rule attracts deference. When the motion judge exercises her new fact-finding powers under Rule 20.04 sub 2.1 and determines whether there is a genuine issue requiring a trial, this is a question of mixed fact and law. Where there is no extricable error in principle, findings of mixed fact and law should not be overturned, absent palpable and overriding error. That's from Howson and Nicolaisen, 2002, SCC 33 at Para 36. Similarly, the question of whether it is in the interest of justice for the motion judge to exercise the new fact-finding powers provided by Rule 20.04 sub 2.1 depends on the relative evidence available at the summary judgment motion and a trial the nature, size, complexity and cost of the dispute, 
and other contextual factors. Such a decision is also a question of mixed fact and law which attracts deference. Provided that it is not against the interest of justice, a motion judge's decision to exercise the new powers is discretionary. Thus, unless the motion judge misdirected herself, or came to a decision that is so clearly wrong that it resulted in an injustice, her decision should not be disturbed. Of course, where the motion judge applies an incorrect principle of law, or errs with regard to a purely legal question, such as the elements that must be proved for the plaintiff to make out her cause of action, the decision will be reviewed on a correctness standard. E. Did the motion judge err by granting summary judgment? The motion judge granted summary judgment in favour of the Moulding Group. While the Court of Appeal found that the action should not have been decided by summary judgment, it nevertheless dismissed the appeal. Hriniak argues this constituted prospective overruling, but in light of my conclusion that the motion judge was entitled to proceed by summary judgment, I need not consider these submissions further. For the reasons that follow, I am satisfied that the motion judge did not err in granting summary judgment. 1. The tort of civil fraud. The action underlying this motion for summary judgment was one for civil fraud brought against Hriniak, Peebles and Castlesbrock. As discussed in the companion Bruno Appliance Appeal, the tort of civil fraud has four elements which must be proven on a balance of probabilities. 1. A false representation by the defendant. 2. Some level of knowledge of the falsehood of the representation on the part of the defendant, whether knowledge or recklessness. 3. The false representation caused the plaintiff to act. 4. The plaintiff's actions resulted in a loss. 2. Was there a genuine issue requiring a trial? In granting summary judgment to the Malden Group against Hriniak, the motion judge did not explicitly address the correct test for civil fraud, but, like the Court of Appeal, I am satisfied that his findings support that result. The first element of civil fraud is a false representation by the defendant. The Court of Appeal agreed with the motion judge that, quote, unquestionably the Malden Group was induced to invest with Hriniak because of what Hriniak said to Fred Malden, end quote, at the meeting of June 19, 2001, a paragraph 158, and this was not disputed in the appellant's factum. The motion judge found the requisite knowledge or recklessness as to the falsehood of the representation, the second element of civil fraud, based on Hriniak's lack of effort to ensure that the funds would be properly invested and failure to verify that the eventual end point of the funds, New Savings Bank, was secure. The motion judge also rejected the defence that the funds were stolen, noting Hriniak's feeble efforts to recover the funds, waiting some 15 months to report the apparent theft of 10.2 million US dollars. The motion judge also found an intention on the part of Hriniak that the Malden Group would act on his false representations, the third requirement of civil fraud. Hriniak secured a 76,000 US dollar loan for Fred Malden and conducted a test trade actions which, in the motion judge's view, were, quote, undertaken for the purpose of dissuading the Malden Group from demanding the return of its investment, end quote, at paragraph 113. Moreover, the motion judge detailed Hriniak's central role in the web of deception that caused the Malden Group to invest its funds and that dissuaded them from seeking their return for some time after they had been stolen. The final requirement of civil fraud, loss, is clearly present. The Malden Group invested 1.2 million US dollars and, but for a small return of 9,600 US dollars in February 2002, lost its investment. 
The motion judge found no credible evidence to support Herniak's claim that he was a legitimate trader, and the outcome was therefore clear. So the motion judge concluded that there was no issue requiring a trial. He made no palpable and overriding error in granting summary judgment. 3. Did the interest of justice preclude the motion judge from using his powers under Rule 20.04? The motion judge did not err in exercising his fact-finding powers under Rule 20.04 sub 2.1. He was prepared to sift through the detailed record and was of the view that sufficient evidence had been presented on all relevant points to allow him to draw the inferences necessary to make dispositive findings under Rule 20. Further, while the amount involved is significant, the issues raised by Hriniak's defence were fairly straightforward. As the Court of Appeal noted, at root, the question turned on whether Hriniak had a legitimate trading programme that went awry when the funds were stolen, or whether his programme was a sham from the outset. The plaintiffs are a group of elderly American investors and, at the return date of the motion, had been deprived of their funds for nearly a decade. The record was sufficient to make a fair and just determination and a timely resolution of the matter was called for. While the motion was complex and expensive, going to trial would have cost even more and taken even longer. Despite the fact that the Malden Group's claims against Peebles and Castles Brock had to proceed to trial, there is little reason to believe that granting summary judgment against Hriniak would have a prejudicial impact on the trial of the remaining issues. While the extent of the other defendants' involvement in the fraud requires a trial, that matter is not predetermined by the conclusion that Hriniak clearly was a perpetrator of the fraud. The motion judge's findings speak specifically to Herniak's involvement and neither rely upon nor are inconsistent with the liability of others. His findings were clearly supported by the evidence. It was neither against the interest of justice for the motion judge to use his fact-finding powers, nor was his discretionary decision to do so tainted with error. Conclusion. Accordingly, I would dismiss the appeal with cost to the respondents. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademeyer. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademeyer. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademeyer at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.